Radio home for Philadelphia Flyers hockey. Go in front, the black, and they score! WENJ, WENJ HD, Millville, Atlantic City, 97.3 ESPN. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Welcome to the 5 o'clock hour. Josh Hennig filling in for Mike Gill. He'll be back in here tomorrow here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN along with Hunter Brody proudly wearing his Fly or Die Flyers t-shirt. Flyers hockey tonight after the Sixers versus Celtics here on 97.3 ESPN. Talk more Sixers, Celtics. Talk more NBA bubble. It is the man who knows all about the bubble. Keith Smith joins us here on the boardwalk kind of hotline as he does every Wednesday Yahoo Sports make sure you give Keith a follow on Twitter as well because he's not just you know covering the NBA a little bit here and there he covers it all day long every day Keith Smith NBA on Twitter and he joins us as I said on the boardwalk kind of hotline Keith how you doing today I'm doing great Josh thanks for having me before we get to anything else I did want to ask you about the report that came out, because you're the guy who's talked a lot about the situations with the bubble, and I thought it was very interesting. Two corresponding news stories relating to the NBA have come out in the last couple of hours, so it looks like the teams are going to have mini camps who are not in the bubble, and then a corresponding follow-up that there's a possibility that college basketball might try to start their own seasons in the exact arenas the NBA is playing in now. Yeah, the, the the NBA one is is pretty simple and straightforward. The eight teams that were not uh, invited to be part of the restart have wanted to do something that was organized where they could get together and and you know to figure something out. Ultimately, it was decided it wasn't a smart decision to bring all eight of those teams together. So what they're ultimately going to do is they're going to let them work in their home arenas. They're, they're going to bring, bring them uh, in or their home practice facilities, um, and they're, they're going to do their thing there. So that's going to be um, you know, really good for them to get that organized work in. It will be voluntary. They will be quarantined in a nearby hotel and those kind of things. But it's going to be good for them to get together. The college basketball and that's uh, kind of coming rapidly and developing quickly. It sounds like what they want to do is do some form of almost a preseason type tournament in place of the traditional non-conference schedule that we would normally see start up sometime in November. And those uh, all those uh, Thanksgiving week tournaments and the like are probably not going to happen uh, just because the teams aren't going to travel and gather. So we, we may end up ultimately see some college basketball played in the uh, same spot here at Walter. The other thing about the bubble I wanted to ask you about is I was reading an in-depth interview with Chris Haynes. He was talking about like his career and his life experiences in the bubble. And one of the things he mentioned is the fact that it seems like that, you know, we were talking about, you know, the where the Disney employees would be coming in and coming out of the bubble. And it seems like, according to Chris, that there is a strong demarcation between the people who are allowed in the bubble versus not allowed to the point where he was saying that, in, in some ways, there are people, it's like, they're over there and we're in here. And I thought that development was interesting because we were all worried before about, you know, the Disney employees, are they being tested, are they being temperature checked, all those things. But the way he may have seemed like, it seems like there's even tighter clamps on this bubble for the people inside it than maybe we even thought. Yeah, there are. So what's happening with the Disney cast is when they come in, 
they are temperature checked, symptom checked, all these things that they have to do each day. And that's every single one of them that is back working at Walt Disney World as the theme parks in many of the resorts have reopened as well. There's no difference with the um, the NBA folks or folks working with the NBA than there is anywhere else. But what's happening there, though, is it's not social distancing. It is like social invisibility, I guess is the best way to put it. They are nowhere close to the NBA folks um, while things are going on. The housekeeping staff goes in only when they're away from their rooms, and they know that they're away from their rooms for a long period of time. They're, they're not anywhere close to them. So ultimately, what you're seeing with the, um, with, with the Disney people is they know what to do. They know how to handle themselves, and they're keeping their distance from the NBA people just as much as they need to let's get into the action so before we get into the adjustments that need to be made for game two and gordon hayward and all of that let's talk about game one what were your thoughts about game one the turnovers for the sixers were an issue allowing offensive boards were an issue it seemed like maybe matisse Thybul could be the difference maker he did a good job against jason tatum but overall your thoughts on game one yeah, I, you hit on some of the big ones. I think uh, far too many live ball turnovers for Philadelphia that allowed Boston to get out and running and make some plays. The Celtics didn't take as good of advantage of those as you would hope they would have in a normal situation, but they, they were able to still get some points off those live ball turnovers. And then what you saw for Philadelphia was I think we saw kind of the predictability of their offense. They were able to go inside to Joel Embiid early and often, and it worked great. But as Embiid wore down and as Boston started to double more, that became an issue, and he wasn't able to do quite as much. And that that, that was that was a problem. And then the, the question all series long is going to be, can he get enough help from the other guys? And some of the other guys just went missing at points in the game. The Celtics are going to actively do what they can to make Embiid really, really work. And if other guys beat them, other guys beat them. The other piece I would say is Philly almost nothing from their bench that that's really tough and that's going to be hard for them to work around and that's why I'm wondering if you know there is the potential clearly we're talking right now I don't know if Brett Brown has, has said anything in his media availability today if he's switching up the lineup or not but that's something to keep an eye on one thing we knew know for sure tonight no Gordon Hayward so give us an idea what exactly is the impact of Gordon no Gordon Hayward for the rest of this series how does that impact Boston and then the domino effect? How does that either benefit or not benefit the 76ers? Yeah, it's huge for Boston because Hayward is often the guy who initiates the offense in the half court. He's the guy that allows Kemba Walker to work off the ball quite a bit. Now that he, he's, you, you regularly see he sets up Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. He'll bring the ball up quite a bit for the Celtics as well. So that that's going to be something that's going to be uh, different. Their defense will be fine. Marcus Smart will play and play more. And in Smart, uh, he called himself – this uh, just yesterday, the best defensive player in the league. And well, that's probably some hyperbole in there. You love the confidence and he's not all that far off. He's one of the best defensive players, maybe the best defensive guard in the NBA. So he's going to be tough. He'll be out there doing his thing. And, and you saw his defensive impact in game one. Uh, offensively, you're going to get a little more playmaking off the dribble with smart probably. Um, but the shooting becomes a little bit of a worry. The rebounding becomes that much bigger of a challenge um, because Hayward was a 
very good rebounder. So that's, it's a tough loss. For Philadelphia, it now gives them a player they, they can feel a little more comfortable helping off of. While Smart's a willing shooter, he's not always a great shooter. So I think Philly, if they're going to send help off somebody, it'll come off of Marcus Smart, and that'll be where they'll, they'll be able to maybe dig down a little bit on Tatum and Brown on drives, or if the Celtics are doing anything um, inside in the post with those guys, which is pretty rare. But even like with someone like Ennis Cantor, they can help help there. So we'll ultimately see how that goes. If you were Brett Brown, would you start Matisse Thibel instead of Al Horford and have him stick on Jason Tatum? Because you did see in that second half, it seemed like he figured him out a bit. And, and obviously, based off of what we've seen out of Matisse Thibel, he can make a, a night a living hell for some guys. Yeah, I, I I think I would, um, especially considering Boston's probably going to go small. Um, now they, they're probably going to go with smart. I, I would be shocked. Brad Stevens wouldn't commit to that, but I would be surprised if it wasn't Marcus Smart. Now maybe they, if they have a sense Al Horford's going to start, maybe they start Grant Williams and go a little bit uh, bigger because you could get away with playing two bigs um, in, in that kind of a lineup alignment rather. But I think it'll be smart. And if Horford's out there, that just really further exacerbates who does Al Horford guard. It's really a challenge uh, for the Sixers. So, yeah, I, I would think if if he doesn't start Thibel, I think you're going to see him get into the game very, very quickly in this one, especially if Boston's able to really spread uh, Philadelphia out again and attack you know those gaps and those kind of things. Don't you think, though, like you brought up Al Horford and, and who's he going to defend, and I agree with you completely, but doesn't that mean offensively then the Sixers should be able to take advantage of Al Horford? It, it just, I don't know, the offense sometimes just blows my mind when I see everyone standing around and not creating much more than they should be able to. Well, the problem is who who do they have that can't create? You don't have anybody who's an offensive creator off the dribble. It's you know Josh Richardson can do a little bit, Jake Milton can do a little bit, but that's about it. Nobody else is going to create offense. That's why everything is becomes very predictable. It has to be run and it has to be run at a high level, and that's where the turnovers killed them. Well, when you're turning it over and you're not running your offense the way you are, like like for example, right now the Utah Jazz are playing. Utah runs a very predictable offense as well, but they run it very well. They, they execute at a high level, and that's the difference. You, you can run a predictable offense. You know, it's like the old football you know, axiom. You, you know, we'll, we'll tell you exactly what's coming because we're going to run it so well it doesn't matter. Well, you can do that in basketball. You just can't turn it over and, and have a whole bunch of empty possessions, and that was a huge problem for Philadelphia. Keith Smith joining us here on the Boardwalk on the Hotline on 97.3 ESPN. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at KeithSmithNBA for all your NBA coverage. Keith, aside from the turnovers, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously, that's something a lot of people can hang on to. I mean, the Celtics had 21 points off of the Sixers' turnovers in Game 1. Is there something else about this Sixers team? Is there a, a takeaway from Game 1 or a redeeming quality or something that you can put your finger on and say if the Sixers do this or do this better, they can win game two. You have to make sure Embiid gets touches late in the game. I believe the, the stat that was thrown around was in the final 553 of the game. He only got one pass from a teammate that led to a shot. That, that's a problem. That that can't happen. He's your best player by far and away. you got to play through him. No matter what the Celtics are doing, you have to be able to figure that out. On the other side is, I know we've talked a lot about, about Matisse Thibel. I would make sure you can get uh, Alec Burks in there. He is now probably your best creator off the bounce. 
He's a, he's a guy who gave Boston a little bit of trouble. And if Smart's going to start, the Celtics don't really necessarily have a guy to match to him off the bench. So that's going to be interesting to see how that goes. But yeah, those are, those are the things that stood out to me. Is Embiid was great when he got good quality touches. It's that has to continue for the entirety of the game. Aside from Embiid, who's the guy who needs to step up for the Sixers? Not just to win game two, but to win the series because there's been a lot of contention, at least among us here, about who can or who won't win the series. And, you know, it's kind of an even divide. There's some of us who are saying Sixers and seven. Some of us are saying Celtics and six. So who's the guy for the Sixers, aside from Embiid, that really needs to put up or shut up? Tobias Harris. It's got to be him. He has to be a 20-point-plus-per-game score. He has to be efficient in the way he does it. If he's not, it's just going to be too hard on Philadelphia to score. And that's, that's been the kind of the knock on Tobias Harris since he really kind of elevated his game when in his Orlando years. Was he's a guy who, you know, I used to say Tobias Harris averages 17.5 points per game because he scores 30 one night and he scores five the next. And that's, you know, that, that's just the guy he is. You need him regularly to be 20 to 25 points and be right in there. Otherwise, you're going to have a really hard time beating Boston. Going back to the late touches for Joel Embiid, whose fault is that? Because there are plenty of times where I, I see Joel Embiid not being assertive enough. I, I know that people want to blame the coach, and, and Brett Brown obviously has a role in why this team looks the way that they look. But at this other side of it, I want to see him be down there demanding the basketball, and he doesn't do that. And I feel like that's on him to get in the post, put his hand up, and give me the ball. Like I don't think he's assertive enough late in the game, and while I do blame Brett because of the way the offense looks, I also blame the player. What do you think about that? It's everybody's. It's Joel Embiid. It's Brett Brown. It's it's the fellow 76ers players that are out there with him. If you start with Embiid, he does, he's never looked like he's ever in great shape to me. And that's, you know, including even now. And that's a worry because what you see with him out there is great early and then late. Part of the reason he wasn't getting good touches was he wasn't rolling hard to the basket. He wasn't, you know, being forceful. He wasn't really pushing through guys. He was just kind of content to float around the perimeter and then get really late position in the post. And he allowed, as a Daniel Williams and Ennis Cantor to push him off his spot far too easily late in the game. Then it's on Brett Brown. Brett Brown needs to have some quick, easy sets that he can get into. Stuff that doesn't take 20 seconds out of the shot clock to develop. It needs to take five or six seconds where you can get him a touch, and then if Boston sends a double, you can you can kick it out, reverse it, and get an open shot off of it. So that's going to be the other piece. And that's the other players. They need to do a much better job of getting him touches on those plays where he does open himself up and make them available because there were a couple times it was there, and they either threw him terrible passes, which got picked off, or they just went away from it for some reason. And that, that was hard. They, they need to know Boston's going to double that and let them double it and then say, hey, it's going to come back to me. Joel Embiid has become such a good passer. He's not going to force it out of those situations. He's going to make the right play, and they need to be able to trust in that and stick with that for the entire game. Now let's switch it to Brett Brown and Joel Embiid, but defensively, it looks like Brett Brown is speaking now, and he claims that he still likes Joel Embiid in drop coverage when it comes to the pick and roll because he's afraid of the guard play possibly torching him. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Do you think dropping Joel Embiid back in a pick and roll is the way to go here? 
No, that's and that's why Brett Brown's not going to be the 76ers coach then because it's not working. He's afraid of the guards torching him. That torched them all game long anyway. He missed a bunch of shots, but he's not going to miss if he gets those same shots again in this game. He missed a bunch of those pull-up jump shots from right around the foul line that he uh, the, the Jason Tatum, same thing a, a handful of times. Now, what he's hopeful there, I'm guessing, is that Daniel Tice will be forced into shooting the ball more. But I think Boston's going to be far more aggressive with Tice rolling, and then that takes Embiid further out of it. And they're just going to live with Walker pull-ups. They're going to live with Tatum, Brown. Those guys are going to do more with the ball in their hand without Gordon Hayward. And if Embiid is living right around the restricted area, right around the rim, Boston will live with those free throw line pull-up jumpers all game long, and that'll kill Philadelphia. All right, so if I can just take that a little further, because you said something that's probably making a bunch of people listening scream, yes, thank you, and other people saying, wait, what? If you can just let me run down this road. Sixers lose this series, let's say. Are we assuming Brett Brown, number one, gets let go? And number two... To answer the in, the in just the craziest question in the world that nobody likes to answer except for smart people like yourself, Keith, who actually replaces Brett Brown if he's not the coach? Yeah, the first part is yeah. I, I think if they lose, especially if they you know lose and it's a fairly you know four, five game series or or it's six games and some of the games aren't competitive, I, I think he's done. I think you know even if they lose in seven games in the first round, I think Brett Brown is done. I you know and that's a little unfair because I do think he is a good coach. I think he's just a little bit stubborn with the personnel he has. I think with this whole Joel Embiid living in the drop, it's also done to conserve Embiid. Embiid, we saw it in, in the game of uh, the few times he did come out to the perimeter. He picked up silly fouls up there. You don't want him picking up any of his fouls out around the arc. He's also, that wears him out. He has to be all the way out there chasing around perimeter players. That's tough. So you're conserving his energy and his fouls by having him live at the rim. Now, who replaces him? That's a great question. And I don't know that there's a really the answer to that. There's going to be you know a lot of guys available uh, this offseason that people are talking about. Ty Lue, Jason Kidd. Um, there, there's you know guys like Kenny Atkinson um, that are available. I, I think for Philadelphia, I think they would have loved to have a guy like Tom Thibodeau who would have come in and really pushed this group hard. But he clearly took the next job. He wasn't going to wait any longer. So I'm not really sure who it'll be, but I do think you're going to see a new coach in Philadelphia next season. See, this is how I know that we are screwed when it comes to this basketball team. We are sitting in the middle of a playoff run, ready for game two tonight. And instead of talking about adjustments, what they can do, which I, I know we got you, but we're talking about a coaching change. I mean, that just tells me everything I need to know when it comes to where the 76ers are right now. Yeah, that's that's it's pro- probably fair, and some of that you know is is driven by Ben Simmons isn't there. You're missing a huge piece, you know, arguably your best all around. Not arguably, he is the best all around player on the team. That that's you know really hard to be without him. You know, and they they had everything built around this new lineup. They had geared their whole restart to Ben Simmons at the four, Al Horford coming off the bench, and then that gets wrecked midway through the seeding games when he dislocates his knee, and that's. That's tough, but even with him there, I don't know that things change all that much in this series or overall lengthy in the uh, playoff run. I just think it's going to be too, uh, too, too. There's just too much there that um, you know for them to be able to beat beat Boston, or if they get past it, they're not going to beat Toronto in the next round, and that that's you know just as much of a challenge. I'd be remiss while having you on, Keith. We'd ask you about some of the other games that are going on in the bubble. Obviously, yesterday. 
Not one, but two huge upsets. The Magic for the second straight year win a game one as a low seed. And then the Trailblazers, who are the eighth seed technically, but not in reality, beat the Lakers in game one. So what were your takeaways from those two situations? Yeah, I'll start with the second one. We, we kind of felt like it was with, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, the Portland was going to be tough, and they, they really made things hard. What's scary for the Lakers is they only got 93 points against the Portland team that had let up an average of 123 points in the seeding games, and, and I believe they hadn't held an opponent under 100 since early January. It, it's just not a team that you can afford to not score points against. The Lakers' defense was pretty good against the Portland group that's clearly running on fumes and is tired, but their offense is just a mess. On the other side, Orlando beat Milwaukee because Orlando kept taking the open shots that Milwaukee gives you. What too many teams do against the Bucs is they go through a cold stretch where they miss five or six three-pointers in a row, or they miss eight out of ten, and then they go away from them. The Bucs are going to give you those wing three-pointers, and they're going to give you pull-up jumpers. If you just stick with those – you're going to be in great shape. And that's exactly what, what Orlando did. Orlando went in there. And I don't know if there's a coach in the league. There, There's maybe a couple. But Steve Clifford's pretty high on my list. If I needed a coach to drop a game plan to win one game with a few days to prepare for it, I'd have Steve Clifford very high on that list. When you look at the games also today, we saw that the Raptors and the Nets game was very close, although the Raptors still won. They didn't lose. What do you think of the Eastern Conference right now? Do you think the Eastern Conference is maybe a little bit more parity than we originally thought, or is some of what you know going on is just a byproduct of them being in the bubble neutral court environment? Um, no, I think it was always a little more, you know, closer than people gave it credit for. And I still pick the box to advance and I still feel good that Milwaukee will because I think they'll figure it out. There's just such a against Orlando. It wouldn't surprise me if Giannis shoots 30 free throws and they, they win by 30 points this, this game too. That wouldn't shock me at all. I just think they need to really in a way, I think this was maybe one of the best things that could happen to them. So I think they're going to, uh, Mike Woodenholz will probably spent today just ripping them up and down and making sure they know they're not nearly as good as they thought they were. But at, beyond that, it's, yeah, Raptors are going to be right there. I think Boston, even without Gordon Hayward, is still a very good team. I think Miami's going to be tough uh, to get out so yeah I think that it's going to be close it's going to be a lot harder on Milwaukee than I think a lot of people expected it to be going back to that Lakers game last night I thought that was so entertaining uh, watching Damian Lillard right now I think everybody can totally sit there and root for his story because you know he was the one that claimed I want to go and play for something if we go to the bubble and now he's making this happen so it's really fun but with Anthony Davis and LeBron James they weren't coming up big last night late. What, what were your thoughts about how Anthony Davis was down the stretch and LeBron? Whether it was the offense or is Davis himself, he was way too passive. He was content to take jumpers. And I know a couple years ago, that's how he beat Portland, uh, basically by himself when a lower-seeded Pelicans team went in and then they swept out a Portland team. It was because he hit a ton of jump shots. But just way too passive. He needs to be more around the basket. He needs to dive to the rim on those pick and rolls with LeBron. And, and he was just content to take a that Portland's really great if you make them whatever it works in favor for us and then I think LeBron over and over again he made the correct play he made the right read just to watch the shot clank off the rim and you could really sense his frustration at the end of that game what I was a little surprised in is down the stretch with about three minutes to play I thought they might put LeBron on game and say go go shut him down 
you know, make somebody else beat us. And they never did. And Damian Lillard, I mean, he's taking those pull-up jumpers from basically half court uh, right right at the edge of the logo. And there's not a whole lot you can do about those. But I really thought they left him, you know, out there to, you know, just really have a shot at beating him. And that's, that's not going to be anything that's going to work well for the Lakers. Keith, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you a bit of a macro NBA question. That is, obviously, there's a lot of chatter online about the NBA's viewership numbers since their return to action in the bubble. And, you know, I found personally, when I dig deeper into those ratings numbers, I'm finding that the problem overall is the times of some of these games. There's a huge gap between, for example, the Lakers-Blazers game, which was actually the number one viewed show on cable television last night, and the game that pops on earlier in the day. It seems like the NBA's problems, and you know, you could tell me you know, where I may be drawing the line too far or too close with this, but it seems to me you know, some of the concepts about the NBA's viewership problems seems to be the time of the game and where the channels the game is on more so than the actual games themselves. Yeah, you mean to tell me a ton of people didn't skip work to watch Bucks Magic? in the middle of the day. I mean, I'm not surprised about this, right? That's just, you know, the reality is these games, you know, because of necessity, because of the bubble, they're being played at, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday. The the NBA now does not play playoff games like that. They'll do that on the weekend, on the Saturday and Sunday of the first round. Those are, you know, full four games each day, but weekdays, the games are at night. They, they play, you know, usually two, maybe three, occasionally four games in the evening, you know, seven, seven o'clock, nine o'clock, eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever it is. And they'll play them in their regular windows. What I have continually said from folks in the league is, don't look at the ratings from the games that were played, you know, in the afternoon, especially weekday afternoon games. It's just not a thing for us, you know, and our fans, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to, to figure out, you know, how to get to see those and those kind of things. And if they are, they're streaming it illegally from their computer while they're supposedly working, you know, and I'm, I'm making air quotes around working here, you know, and I know you guys can't see me, but, but what they're saying is focus on those two later games. What do the ratings look like for those? If those look pretty good, then we feel pretty good about it. Have ratings dropped off? Sure. Ratings have dropped off, but all ratings outside of football, which is one day a week on the big channels, all of the major network games have dropped off. Major League Baseball is does well on their local regional sports networks, but they don't do well on the ESPN game of the week. No one's tuning in to watch a random baseball game. You watch your team play. That's you know, and that's unfortunately the NBA has a little bit of that going on too, which I think is giving them some pause to how do we tweak our our our, uh, our you know schedule here? How do we change things up a little bit? What do we do a little bit different to make these midseason games more interesting to the average viewer? And I think you're going to see it may not be in the next season or this, even the season after that, but I think you're going to see the NBA come away from this with some very big permanent changes in the years to come that were really driven by things that they learned out of the bubble. He's Keith Smith. Follow us with our Keith Smith NBA Yahoo Sports NBA covers the NBA all around, also joins us every Wednesday here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Keith, appreciate the time and enjoy the action. I I see that looks like right now the uh, the Nuggets are still losing to the Jazz at halftime. So uh, fingers crossed that series goes six, seven games, right? Uh, yeah, we, we would like to see that. You know, I just as a basketball junkie, I'm always in for six and seven game series. Give me all the basketball I can get. But yeah, it, it's, you know, right, right now, let's be honest for you, me, and, and probably anybody listening to this, this is just a warm up for what we're looking forward to around 630. Absolutely. Sixers, Celtics, 630. 
catch the action here on 97.3 ESPN. Keith, appreciate the time as always. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Y'all stay safe. You and yours. You too. And as all guests, he appeared on the Boardwalk Honda Hotline here on 97.3 ESPN. Josh Ennick-Filling for Mike Gillon with Hunter Brody. Coming next is the Weinberg Wednesday. Of course, you've heard me for months on the warm-up. Now it's game night here on 97.3 ESPN. Weinberg Wednesday. Veteran Eagles reporter Dave Weinberg will join us. ESPN. Mike will be back in here tomorrow for the Sports Bash. Of course, we're along with Hunter Brody here on 97.3 ESPN. Just an hour from now, Sixers versus Celtics. Game two tonight on 97.3 ESPN. And then after that, the Flyers look to close out their series with the Canadians. Game five tonight. The Philadelphia Sports Playoff doubleheader on 97.3 ESPN. Right now, it's a Weinberg Wednesday. If you've ever listened to game night or the warm-up, you know that we're joined by Dave Weinberg. Longtime Eagles beat writer, of course, has covered local high school sports as well in the area for a long time. As all guests, he appears on the Boardwalk kind of hotline for a Weinberg Wednesday. Dave, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Josh. Just left the beach, so all was good. Well, obviously... You were having a little bit more sunshine in your day than I am because I've been inside most of the day. When I came in, it was downpouring this morning. So, <laughs> yeah, it's been raining most of the day here, but cleared up just in time. So I, I headed out down about two o'clock and stayed there for a few hours. It was good. Nice. So, obviously, people can check out your extra point columns over at ninety-seven-three-ESPN.com. And you know, with the Eagles getting back in camp, I thought it was interesting about the fact of you know the way this environment is right now with. How you know there's no preseason games. There's a lot of not, a lot of stuff that you really you can't do like you usually do in a typical setting for the media at Eagles camp. It almost seems like it's a very unique opportunity for you to actually not have to be there and actually still cover the Eagles because it seems like even if you're there, you're not allowed getting a lot of information anyway. Yeah, it kind of turned out for the best. I like I wrote, I was kind of. Uh... First time I haven't been there in 28 years, but uh, you know I was a little down about it, and uh, you know first time since like 1993, I guess. And uh, but it turns out I haven't really missed much. I mean, uh, like you said, I can keep track of everything, um, you know, through the Zoom and the teleconferences and the updates that they give. Um, the other, there's a few reporters that are out there to watch practice, but you can't even stay there. You can't even go in the media room to, to write your stories. You have to go back to your car or, or drive home. Uh, you can't interview players. Um, everything is done through via Zoom or, or a teleconference. So uh, it's, um, you have to really strange uh, setup. I want to know your thoughts on this whole. We were talking about this earlier in the day. Mike Gill was talking about with Hunter Brody, and I chimed in as well. This whole upper lower body thing that the Eagles are doing <laughs> right now. I mean, is this the strangest thing you ever heard of? Because I feel like you know, on the on the contrast, the NBA came out with a statement today saying teams are not allowed to have these reports anymore they have to be explicit and specific with their injury reports meanwhile on the flip side the eagles are going hockey upper body lower body it just seems so bizarre yeah i don't understand it i know it's a, it's a apparently it's a policy with the entire nfl that was already worked out between the players association and the league um i i don't understand it um I, I just uh, the Eagles have never been well. The Eagles used to be very forthcoming with their injuries when Andy Reid was the coach and Rick Burkhalter. Rick Burkhalter was the head athletic trainer. Um, you know they went out of their way to to let you know what how a player was feeling. You know if they were injured, what was happening. I mean Rick was actually the the first one to kind of introduce the Liz Frank uh, foot injury, and uh, you know he brought out a big diagram and explaining what it was and the history of it. And 
But now Doug, Doug Peterson um, really doesn't do that. Uh, this isn't really that that far past from what he's been doing in the past. I mean, he'll he would gather he would tell you on Monday if somebody was hurt, and then when you ask what was wrong, he'd say, "Well, we have to have more tests." But then he didn't talk again until later in the week, and you never really got like a true idea. I mean, you knew the body part, uh, which is a step in, a step uh, ahead from what they're what they're doing now, but you really didn't get. Uh, a lot of transparency, but you're right. It, it, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, lower lower body, upper body. That, that's just stupid to me. Are you buying or not buying into the coaches like Jim Schwartz and uh, Marquez Manuel talking up Jalen Mills? Um, not well. I guess like uh, they really don't have a choice. I mean, they're. Uh, you know, they're the ones that decided that Jalen was going to be their new safety. So uh, it behooves them to, to kind of pump him up as much as they can. Um, I, I still have my doubts about whether he'll be able to handle the position. I'm still kind of befuddled as to why Russell Douglas wasn't the guy that was switched there because he's clearly not fast enough to be a corner. Uh, but he's big, and, he's big and strong enough to play safety and even move down in the box that we Malcolm Jenkins did. I don't think Jalen's going to be able to do that. So, um uh, I have to. I kind of have to reserve judgment. Now, unfortunately, you don't have any preseason games or or even the you know uh, inner squad workouts to to kind of judge them. So we're going to have to wait and see. And they just better hope that he's ready. You know, when they open the season at Washington. I know it's just training camp, but is there a specific position or player that you are interested the most in during this camp? Uh, Andre Dillard is the one. Um, you know, there's been a lot of pressure on him. Uh, to yeah, as, you know, they lauded him during the off season. Doug was, you know, building him up the way that uh, Jim Schwartz did with Jalen Mills about how he's ready to take over the left tackle spot. And uh, so it's kind, of, it's kind of really, and even Andre has shown some confidence in the way he's uh, approached it. Um, he seems like he's ready, really uh, up for the challenge, but it remains to be seen. But that's a, that's a really key position for the Eagles. Uh, you know, and you, and you have Jason Peters just waiting in the wings. To take over if something goes wrong, I, I can't see them like you know sticking him at right at right guard and leaving him there. So, um, but I, I'm kind of encouraged with the way Andre has handled everything, uh, both you know mentally and physically. And I think he's going to be I think he's going to be up for the challenge. I wanted to reappropriate a question to you, Dave, that Mike Gill and Hunter Burry were asking previously, which is, do you feel like with all the stuff that's going on in the sports world right now, with baseball and this condensed season and the NBA and the NHL playoffs this month and no preseason NFL games that does it feel like to you the Eagles have taken a back seat to all of that or do you still feel like there's still as much passion and energy for the Eagles in a typical August as it would be uh, maybe not now but Philadelphia is a football town uh, this area is a football area uh, I think once the, once the season starts then all those other teams are going to take a back seat. Uh, I think it's fair to assume, though, that right now, I think the uh, the Sixers and Flyers, especially being in the playoffs, uh, I think that's kind of, uh, you know, moved to the forefront of the sports world at the moment. But there won't be too much longer before the Eagles are back on top. How invested or uninvested are you in the other three teams playing right now, personally? Uh, uh, pretty much. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really rooting for them. I'm watching, kind of trying to keep track of everybody. I mean, Phillies, you know, it's uh, even though it's only 60 games, it still seems like it's kind of like a grind of a season. And, uh, you know, the dent, they're moving the playing the start times around, so it's kind of tough to uh, to keep track. But, I mean, uh, with, the, with the Sixers and Flyers being in the playoffs, I mean, it doesn't get any more 
intense and interesting like that. And so, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty invested in both of those teams. I know you're a baseball guy, so I wanted to know from you your take on this whole Fernando Tatis Jr. fiasco. Everyone seems to be drawing lines in the sand, and it's almost turning into like a you know a political debate with sides turning into this whole thing with him <laughs> hitting that grand slam the other night. Uh, I have no problem with it whatsoever. You don't want him to hit one up and throw a better pitch. I love that answer. That's that's the best answer I've heard today, Hunter. Isn't that great? Oh, I agree. Yeah, no doubt about it. Now, I threw out at Josh this scenario. Oh, and I just want to hear his opinion. If the score was, let's say, let's say it was 22-3. to 3. Now, that is a scenario where I say, you know what? The Grand Slam was probably not needed. But a seven-run game, you saw that happen last night with the Phillies where they scored seven runs in the sixth inning. So a seven-run game, you have Little League that has a ten-run mercy rule. We're talking major leagues. But let me throw the scenario at you where, say the score is 22-3. to Do you see a reason to hit the Grand Slam there? Um, Maybe you take one pitch. I don't know, but I mean, you know, you're not up to the league to bat on your shoulder. You're going to take, are you going to take call strike three? I just don't see you have to, I mean, you don't have to wait until two strikes to swing the bat, in my opinion. Maybe three, you know, would be a little kind of rubbing it in, uh, but I, I really don't have a major problem with it, regardless of the score. Those are major league hitters. You're a major league pitcher. Get the guy out if you're really that concerned about it. Why do you think some people are so intent then on saying, you know, there's this unwritten rule and you're not supposed to do this and do that? I feel like, I feel like sometimes, Dave, and you know, maybe you can help enlighten me a little bit, and I've asked people this before, it feels like there's some people who just don't want fun in baseball. <laughs> yeah, you might, you might not be far off there. Um, yeah, baseball's, uh, you know, by, by tradition, kind of a uh, stodgy. Uh, most of the fans are, are over 40 or 50. Um, as you don't see a whole lot of uh, younger people getting invested in it. And that's the reason, because there isn't a whole lot of fun. Um, you know, the players are very uh, traditional in, their, in, their, in the way they go about it. Managers, same thing. Um, it's kind of like golf in a lot of ways. That's why you don't see a lot of younger golf fans either, because uh, the, everybody's so worried about upholding the traditions and the, and the unwritten rules, so to speak. So, um, you know, if, if baseball really wants to, wants to, you know, gain more popularity and draw in more fans, then, you know, why not hit a home run at 3-0? Dave, before we let you go again, Weinberg Wednesday. Follow Dave on Twitter at DaveWeinberg19. You can check out his extra point columns at 973ESPN.com. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week because the news happened after the last time we talked, Dave. But uh, Thomas Lamont is getting back to action, the Millville fighter. But he won't be fighting locally, so it's kind of a two-pronged question. Number one, uh, how frustrating is it that Lamont can't fight here in Jersey, he has to go all the way out to Los Angeles to fight. And number two, uh, where is he in his career right now, the state of his career? Uh, well, first question, you know, I talked to Thompson for about uh, 45 minutes to an hour, and he is frustrated because uh, he's a very, he's what you would call a hometown fighter. Um, he's one of those uh, house fighters, if you will. Um, he draws people to the, to, into the seats and uh, sells a lot of tickets. Um, he's one of those guys that makes Atlantic City such a, just an exciting fight town. Uh, especially on the local level. You have guys like him and Anthony Juice Young, Isaiah Selden, and some of the other guys who they draw a lot of fans, and they're good fighters as well. Um, so yeah, it is frustrating for him. But on the same, by the same token, he was saying that um, he's kind of looking forward to, not, to, not fight, to fighting without any fans in the stands because it kind of reduces the pressure. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of uh, – he didn't have to worry about selling tickets. 
Um, he doesn't have to worry about impressing the crowd. He can just go out there and do his thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, by that measure, he's, uh, he's kind of looking forward to it. Um, the second question is uh, that he has no, he has no room for error here. I mean, he's, he's uh, 28, three and one. Um, but every time he's uh, kind of so-called stepped up in competition, it hasn't gone very well for him. Um, he, he, he's coming off a loss in his last fight, uh, kind of a, a disappointing effort that, you know, he resulted, he lost by TKO. Um, uh, he's still ranked 13th in the WBA junior middleweight rankings, but um, he, he absolutely has to win this and, and win it impressively in order to, uh, to stay relevant because there's too many young fighters out there that are uh, willing to pass them by if he doesn't. Dave Weinberg, veteran Eagles beat writer, Hall of Fame boxing writer, joins us every Wednesday for a Weinberg Wednesday as all guests he appeared on the Boardwalk Honda Hotline. Dave, always appreciate the conversation. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me, as always. Josh Ennick filling in for Mike Gell here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. We still have game night coming up next year on 97.3 ESPN along with Hunter Birdie. Five questions to finish up the show coming up next. We'll remind you. PlaySugarHouse.com, our sponsor of the Tech Sports, 609-403-0973. Place your legal sports bets at PlaySugarHouse.com. Time for five questions. Three game and just man, 95. Number five will always love you. I got five on it. Five times. Now can you dig Five questions here on 97.3 ESPN being brought to you. By New Jersey Lottery. With quick draw from the New Jersey Lottery, a $1 bet could win $100,000. New chances to win are every four minutes. So get quick thrills with quick draw because anything can happen in Jersey. Do the Sixers win, Josh? Of course they do. They do? Yeah. I think they win this game for two reasons. One, because I don't think the Celtics are going to be fully uh, adjusted without... Gordon Hayward. You know, you heard Keith Smith say it. You know, he may not be the best player on their team. He might not be the second best player, but he's a guy they rely on to do different things. And without him, I think the Sixers could disrupt things a little bit for them. Over under 32 and a half points for Embiid. I'm just going to say over because... Well, had, if they're going to win, you would think that he'd have yeah, over 32 and a half. But also, I think yesterday's game is kind of reflective on how many times have we seen him? Bad game, Great game. And then an okay game. It's kind of like his pattern of life, right? It's a good point. I can get behind that theory. Over, under, three and a half, three-pointers made for Tobias Harris. I am going to go under. You I think he'll hit three? two. Two, okay. Two or three, but not four. I think to, I think for the Sixers to win, Tobias actually needs to get more twos than threes tonight. I think that for the Celtics, you see how small they are on the court. I mean, how many times do we see the lineups? And now without Gordon Hayward, it's going to be Kemba Walker, Marcus Smart, Brad Wanamaker, Jalen Brown, uh, Jason Tatum, and then whoever the center picked your poison. I feel like that that's an opportunity for Tobias to maybe go bang in the post a little bit. Carter Hart get another shutout tonight? No. Ooh, come I, on, you're a hater. I think the you're Celt- a hater. I think, this, the, can, I think the Flyers win. Okay, well, that was my fifth question. I have I have money on the Flyers Whoa. winning tonight. Yes, that's how so much I believe. You didn't go parlay Sixers-Flyers-Phillies, did you? No, but I did go Sixers-Flyers-Parlay. Okay, both money line? Money line, Okay, yes. I, I don't know what the separate, spread is for the I have Sixers. a separate one where it's Flyers-Money line. Uh, it's, it's Flyers-Money line, Sixers-Sixers uh, Sixers point spread. 
and then over on the oh, dang, I'm like not the, big the Mavericks on, Clippers game. I'm not big on hockey um, spreads. The two like a one I didn't and a touch half. The hockey spread. I don't like hockey spreads. But you I have did, the empty netter that plays such a big role. Like, but I'll I don't go money line. Money line, my yes. money line Sixers spread and over on the Mavs Clippers game. It's uh, at right now it's two twenty eight. Best of luck to you, Josh. Yeah, I'll do my best. I wonder what the odds are for Carter Hart to post a shutout tonight. 